Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. In September of this year, the US Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, published a report on climate change and the risk it poses to the US financial system. The report was stark in its warnings and recommended, among other solutions, pricing carbon, as well as urging organisations to price climate change risk into their business ventures, and encouraging the development and innovation of new derivatives that can help manage that risk. Today we're going to talk about the impact of climate change on the commodities sector itself, what are the current impacts and how do organisations manage that risk, as well as some of the new derivatives that might be required, and how some of the solutions might introduce further risks to businesses in the commodities sector. To do so, we're joined by Brian Beebe, Head Origination, Weather and Energy Americas, the reinsurance giant. Brian, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Paul. Thank you very much. Climate change or the and the volatility within climate right now, is it well accepted by businesses globally that, that this is a, a, an increasing factor that they need to consider when looking at their, the various business risks they face? Great question. I, I think really... A broad base of constituents, not, not just corporates, but also sovereign government entities are well aware of the negative financial impacts associated with climate change. What, what we see globally is that the, both the frequency and severity of climate-related losses have grown uh, dramatically in some regions. And what you find across the globe is a kind of a tale of two stories. You have predominantly Western industrialized societies where there's a high degree of insurance penetration. Those those countries, those regions are much better prepared for climate-related events versus the more emerging market space. Emerging market space uh, from an insurance perspective, is, is characterized by the insurance gap. And this is a very real and kind of systemic problem, and it can be quite destabilizing for countries, uh, particularly after a major climate-related event. Many times these countries that lack insurance penetration, it's just natural for them to look towards generally the government to provide uh, short-term funding and disaster-related response. Yeah, and from a commodities sector, oftentimes these the commodities themselves are uh, mined or, or resource for in the developing world. So that becomes a real live, you know, risk to to organisations as governments, as states become more vulnerable, more volatile, caused by climate change. I guess before we get there. Focusing in on that seasonal climate commodity risk, the reason why hedging is there around gas and power volatility, depending on warm winters and warm summers, is that risk now becoming more difficult to manage because we more frequently have extreme conditions compared to historically? Can you give us some examples of how organizations are being impacted by that? Yeah, clearly back to the the frequency and severity of these weather events, they they are increasing. doesn't need to be a political statement. You can simply look at the, the underlying data about the intensity of storm and particularly temperature 
extremes, you know, really look, look, look no further than what we saw in the western U.S. with California this past summer with extreme temperatures and rolling blackouts in California. You know, the question is whether that becomes the, the new norm. One thing, though, is that the, I think the, the broader global risk transfer market has done a, pr a pretty good job of trying to respond to these exposures. And so I look at the, the evolution of risk transfer offerings uh, that address some of the climate-related perils that commodity companies, particularly energy you know, and mining extraction firms face, it's come a long way. I've been, been in the market for you know, a number of years, and uh, there's certainly a lot more innovation, I think, that may be happening more in the over-the-counter space as, as opposed to the exchange-traded markets. And I look at some of the transactions that you know, Swiss Re and some of its peers are doing involving climate, particularly temperature, wind, certainly rainfall, solar. And we've really found a knack in being able to isolate those variables by themselves or many times provide a energy commodity link to other exposures. It can be a client's natural gas risk in Europe. It can be a power exposure in Texas, or it can be a power index in Australia, where the, the dominant factor is a climate-related event. So the market's really grown in terms of sophistication and I think acceptance of these commodity energy linked substitutes. Are these tools that are only available to very large organizations? I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, in the end, many businesses have some kind of exposure to power prices, for example. Are these, is there an awareness in the broader market that these tools are out there? Paul, I think it, it really it really runs uh, a, full, a full range of you know, very sophisticated entities, your your swap dealers, your bank uh, affiliates, and then all, really all the way down to we see municipal gas companies, we see propane and heating oil companies coming to the climate risk transfer market because for for many of these entities, one of the dominant variables, though it's not, it's not the only one, but many of these firms have temperature-related exposures. So that can be businesses that are hurt financially due to periods of extreme warmth or periods of extreme cold. Temperature is generally a universally accepted and tracked exposure. So all the way from the C-suite down to the trading ranks, down to the operations. Everyone understands temperature. They may not understand a little more uh, sophisticated variables like uh, wind speed. You know, that, that, that's a little more isolated into the, the wind power generation ranks. But globally, what we see is, is temperature-related exposures are probably by far the, the largest risk basket. And within that segment, Paul, you, you, again, you really see the very sophisticated players, but you see a lot of small regional utilities that uh, engage in, in risk transfer. So you have these 
over-the-counter solutions available, whether it's related to temperature or wind speed or, or precipitation, is there, maybe quite a novice's question, but is there a point at which the volatility, the extremes of weather become so much that essentially these tools are just not economic to even provide to, to the market? Many times the climate risk offerings that we engage in have a um, strong similarity to underlying option pricing. And option pricing, whether it's Brent crude oil or Texas power or NYMEX Henry Hub gas, they all have different volatilities. And one of the nice things, it's quite a democratization force within the climate market, but fortunately for a lot of climate perils, there's a universe of 30 plus years of data and neither the buyer nor the seller can dispute the data. It is what it is. So one thing with respect to frequency of payouts, in, in, in many ways, a client seeking warm weather coverage in a market like Europe, which last winter saw the probably the warmest winter since at least since World War II, if they want to come to the market and buy warm weather coverage, one thing they'll be able to do is they, they can see exactly how that instrument would have paid for coverage last winter. So really, in many ways, the climate market is pricing some of these risks in the same way that the underlying energy commodity markets or even equity markets price risk. And so the more, if you want a at the money option, you're going to be paying significantly more than you are for a two delta out of the money uh, put option or, or call option. And so one of the things that the, the insurance and reinsurance markets have done you know, qu quite well is utilize some of the insurance techniques to provide meaningful amounts of climate risk transfer to clients, recognizing there, there's always a budget and trying to provide these climate solutions in a, in a cost-effective manner such that the, the risk is reduced. And I guess before we move on from the seasonal climate side, you know, the, the CFTC report itself encourages innovation in, in new derivatives, new tools. You know, earlier off air, you, you mentioned things that now like wave height derivatives, you know, for LNG vessels. Can you talk a bit about that and maybe some other examples? I think they're fascinating. Sure, Paul. You know, specifically on LNG, beyond just pure weather, we, we think there's a real opportunity for, you know, innovative LNG participants to think about gas spread prices between regions. And so the climate market is, has a lot of experience in combining these climate, particularly temperature events, with regional gas spread prices. So we can perhaps provide some you know, earnings shock absorber exposure that LNG participants perhaps have not thought about. A, an LNG client that had exposure to high wave heights, which was causing uh, demurrage or, or, or shipping delay losses. And we created a coverage that addressed that codependency of 
wave height conditions where LNG ships could not get into port combined with spot natural gas prices in this market exceeding a certain call strike. So the what we offered here was basically a uh, a contingency option where the client received financial settlement in the event that both events occurred. One, a climate event, wave height conditions. The second, spot natural gas price in a EU market exceeding a certain uh, strike price. And so it's these kinds of, call them insure specialties, where we're able to look at contingency events and price those, we think, a little bit more effectively than perhaps the underlying energy trading market would. Interesting. And then moving on to the, I guess, the catastrophic risk. And this is really where I think in some ways the commodity markets are uniquely vulnerable, whether it's the ag world, which is at risk, not only from catastrophic climactic events, but also you know even risk on from a biological infectious disease standpoint, obviously seen that in swine and so on. But many of the commodity assets as they are sit on the coastlines. They also sit in regions that are typically in developing worlds as well, where, as you say, there's that sort of link between climatic volatility and also political volatility. I guess the traditional tools of, of, of managing catastrophic risk we're all aware of from you know, home insurance uh, or flood insurance. It'd be great to understand a bit more about how the reinsurance market has gone about laying off that risk and syndicating amongst themselves, but also these, these ILSs that you mentioned. The commodity markets, particularly energy and mining, it's a, it's a very large customer segment for, for Swiss Re. So we've, over the years, provided a variety of traditional risk transfer sol- solutions, but we've also unveiled a whole suite of, co- many of them are called p- parametric insurance uh, products, as well as derivative offerings that address uh, some of these climate-related themes. And while every commodity client buys traditional insurance like property insurance. And many times there's a whole suite of climate-related risks that they face where th- they go naked or they go uninsured. But what we're seeing, particularly in more exposed regions, is really the, the commodity producers looking at more tail risk events. So th- these are things like taking out derivative capacity in the event of a cat three or above entering into a circle within 200 miles of a large oil and gas rig. Or in the some of the sovereign areas, government areas, we've seen individual states in the U.S. that will come to the climate markets and take out storm surge related coverage. So m- many times along these coastal regions, it, the, the, the damage doesn't come from the, the, the hurricane event itself. It comes from the, the storm surge event. And so we're seeing some pretty, pretty innovative deals coming from, call it the, the, the government or quasi-government sector. We've done some deals with large, large school districts, many of whom have in the case of Florida, billions of dollars of of real estate in climate exposed regions, and you know this trend of 
climate risk in these locations, it isn't going away. Probably some of the other areas, Paul, where we see a lot of deal flow has been with particularly earthquake-related events globally. You know, many times the banking institutions have extraordinary lending exposure to corporate clients, many of whom are engaged in the commodity business or they're engaged in transportation infrastructures. And so many times we see the, the banks themselves. So the lenders are the ones taking out earthquake-related exposures in some of the large Western countries. And, and they're doing this on a silent basis. They don't notify their commodity extraction clients that they're, in effect, hedging themselves. But, you know, historically, the, the insurance market and the banking markets have worked really in, in lockstep with one another. I look at a, the variety of products that the insurance market sells to banks, like credit insurance, and a lot of that activity is behind the veil. So clients are not um, generally aware of the, the under, underlying risk that the bank has laid off with an insurance company. The risk premiums being collateralized or, or combined and then turned into investment products. How does that work? Really, you know, an interesting kind of, if we go back to the, the 2008 cre credit crisis, which really began the you know, current 12-year run of quantitative easing we've all uh, experienced. But one thing we've seen is that the, the rise of alternate capital, meaning particularly hedge funds, but also pension plans, you know, many of whom are, are state or government backed, these entities have been looking for yield in alternate investment classes. And there's been a lot of growth in the ILS market. So this insurance-linked securities market that I referenced, where investors can pick up a non-equity correlated return, might be 4%, might be 6%, depending upon the risk, that bears no relationship at all to the equity market. So what is not correlated to the equity market? Climate risk. And so what we're seeing is new investors are coming in and they're investing in items like previously California wildfire. They also invest in earthquake-related bonds issued by the governments of Mexico and Chile. They'll invest in other sidecar instruments that may invest in Gulf Coast, so call it Florida, Eastern U.S., hurricane-related exposure. And the, there's different tranching going on. So you can take a more risky investment, call it a one in 25 year, or you can invest in a one in 100 year risk event and your return will, will be different. But the evolution of this alternate capital market has in many ways helped many large insurers like Swiss Re that have concentration issues in their portfolio. So uh, pro probably the most prominent example is the, the, the state of Florida, where it, it, historically insurers have had a concentration problem of too much exposure in Florida. But now there's a variety of techniques available for insurance companies to, in effect, syndicate 
trade out of, lay off that, that risk to other entities that are willing to take it. Sometimes, Paul, it happens via a reinsurance contracts. Other times it'll happen via a derivative instrument. Other time it'll happen via a, a bond issue that's uh, collateralized. It just uh, kind of runs the gambit. And these pay out coupon to you up and until and if that particular event, whether it's a wind speed above X or whatever it might be, occurs. Correct. So the, 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 the idea is that the, the investor allocates perhaps 5% of their portfolio. So let's say they put $100 million into this investment theme that invests in uh, climate or catastrophe-related bonds. And so they can come to that market and find a variety of investment risks and returns from low returns, low risk to high return, high investment. Uh, a, a good example of, of that would have been even after the first wave of California fires, Pacific Gas and Electric in 2018 issued a, it's called Cal Phoenix. I think it was a $250 million wildfire bond. And so the attraction to investors there is I get a high yield, say, say 10% on my investment. But if Pacific Gas Electric has another round of severe wildfires, in all likelihood, you, you will lose part or, or your entire investment. And so what we saw in, in 2018 was yet, yet another round of fires in, in California. And that was an example of a uh, bond investment where I believe the entire principal was lost. I was going to say the CFTC report notes PG&E as the one, the first victim of climate change in in the U.S. You know, from a bankruptcy standpoint. Correct. From I think from a bankruptcy perspective, but I think there's been a, a lot of other entities that have been been negatively impacted. And you, you look at the current round of of wildfires across the west and it's you know it's happening in a much broader geographic reach so particularly you know we've seen entities like the state of Oregon for example think about this risk proactively and come to the insurance and cap on market you know well in advance they're, they're not always seeking the the higher the higher cost risks many times they're they're seeking to ensure maybe a one in 50 year or a one in 75 year. And, and what we know from options trading experience is, you know, a, a one in 50 or a one in 75 year, that's uh, significantly less expensive than a one in five year or a one in 10 year. And I guess the fundamental issue there is, you know, we're basing that on past data and if you've got an increasing velocity of change coming you know is that one in 75 year actually you know a, a fair representation of the risk you know fortunately there have been tremendous advances made with new data sources for risks like like wildfire or or more relevant for the energy markets risks like wind and wind speed conditions there's 30 plus years of satellite data, and a lot of that data 
is gridded, meaning we can break that data down into a pretty tight longitude and latitude where insurers can now basically look at 30 years of satellite data and, and put a price on the likelihood of wildfire losses for a particular location. Or if it's lack of wind speed that is concerning to a lender group that's considering financing a new wind portfolio, many times we can utilize this, these reams, reams of satellite data to, to in effect, put, put a price on the future by looking at the past. One of the main solutions to climate change to reduce CO2 is greater reliance on renewables, sources of power globally. They themselves bring their own risks, you know, the, these intermittency risks. And I think the CFTC report itself talks about businesses, uh, financial institutions coming up with new derivatives and, and other hedging instruments that can help support the growth of the industry. And, and you mentioned just now about actually managing these risks really is important to getting these projects financed. Can you talk a little bit about some of the risks associated with particularly wind, but with, with renewables and, and some of the new new instruments that the insurance world has, has come up with to manage them? Sure. That's a uh, great, great question, Paul. And it uh, actually kind of weaves into the cl climate theme because in many ways, renewables is sort of a you know, potent antidote, right, to what, what, what ails us. I think we look at some of the, you know, oil and gas related entities, probably most notably BP, but, but also even Shell and Total. I mean, these entities are pivoting to renewables because their, their core uh, oil and gas business is, you know, is under attack. But in particular, the, the, the renewable growth story is he, here to stay. This, this should be something that we're we're hearing and uh, debating 10 years from now. And clearly, this is probably the most exciting event uh, to happen in my career. And, uh, you know, whether it's wind or solar or even more niche offerings such as battery or, or what's known as BEST, the battery energy storage systems, uh, th th these are becoming mainstream in a lot of markets. Depending upon where we are, we're getting close to you know so-called grid parity with other forms of unsubsidized generation like like natural gas but you know clearly in in renewables there is particularly for wind less so for solar the 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 intermittency related problem is is one that investors um ha have to account for you know overall we've done a variety of wind related Risk transfer structures really around the globe, done deals in Australia, China, across the US, Europe. And, you know, kind of a, a dominant theme from a lender perspective is th th they want to mitigate the tail risk events. So the low wind speed period events, because when they happen, you know, many times that that results in missing a you know semi-annual or annual principal and uh, and interest repayment, and so the, the the actuarial field, which the insurance market is is filled with, you know, is quite good at looking at these these probability features. So, 
the, the market many times will get projects financed based on a what's known as a P50 assumption. So lenders come together and say, great, we'll, we'll loan to this wind project. And we believe the wind consultants projection that the 50th percentile production will result in an adequate uh, rate of return. But again and again, what, what we see is in many markets, we, we go through periods of just bad wind speed regimes where for a quarter, sometimes it's a year, we simply have lower wind speed production and that results in financial problems at the project company. And so I think the, the risk transfer market insurance form primarily, but we do some of these in derivative form, it's, uh, it's kind of well positioned to take some of those tail risks from project companies. And the benefit is the project developer can secure a lower cost of, of capital and the lenders feel comfortable about providing more, more debt. And I guess the CFTC report itself also talks about the need to develop new products, whether derivatives or, or hedges, that support, that allow, you know, it mentions specifically pricing of carbon. Recently, they've come out in support of water derivatives. What do you see looking forwards, you know, the, I guess, the new frontiers for commodity derivatives as it relates to the impacts of climate change? I did thumb through all, I think it was 163 pages of the uh, CFTC report. And uh... yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a weekend reading. I do empathize with a lot, of, a lot of the key points made in in that report. I, I, I do think the the risk transfer market is is up to the challenge. You know, many times what we we need from an industry perspective is just simply innovation to to come from those that have the exposure, as as opposed to those that are selling the risk. And and what I mean by that is many times for, for, for what I do and what my team does, a lot of times the really innovative climate-related deals we do, they come from us pr promoting them to the entity that has the exposure, and it's not the other way around. And there's a lot of climate end users that have a variety of exposures that they either don't think about the the insurance market or maybe they just don't think there's a a market for for that type of risk and we certainly encourage additional dialogue with the smaller and, and medium sized uh, clients yeah i think traditionally climate related risk transfer has been uh, the domain of the predominantly large energy and uh, trading companies but i think i think the market needs to look at the the broader insurance market as a partner to address some of these climate related risks that clients have in their portfolio. A lot of times the the traditional insurance offerings, things like property that that we all are we all buy and are required to buy many times by by law aren't covering these climate related perils. But we do need to see more of a collaborative effort by the the SME market. They can come directly to the insurance market, 
they can deal with insurance brokers, however they come to market. I think there's a lot of capital that wants to address these kinds of risks, but we need to see more participation at the uh, smaller end of the market. More specifically, you know, the CFTC report does recommend organizations beginning to price carbon or the marketplace begin applying a price to carbon. Can you, I guess, talk about that a little bit? Yes, Paul. Uh, you know, unbeknownst to probably non-energy participants in, in North America, there are there are already a handful of, of carbon markets such as California, Quebec, and then the what's known as the the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which is basically the six New England states combined with New York, New Jersey, Maryland, and Delaware. So all of these states, so eleven states and one one province in Canada do charge a, a specific dollar per metric ton for carbon. Now, the question is, can the United States and Canada roll that out on a, on a grander scale? And I think there, there's optimism. I think we need to look towards uh, Europe, not necessarily for leadership, but on how a centralized carbon market can be run. I think the European carbon market's been around since... 2005. It's, it's the world's largest. And we can take some clues from that market. And, uh, you know, sometimes the carbon market has strange, uh, strange supporters. I do recall last year, fall of 2019, I attended a power conference in, in Austin and on stage were the three of the CEOs from the largest independent power producers in the U.S. So we had uh, the CEO from Vistra, NRG, and Calpine. And Vistra and NRG, both you know, large thermal coal portfolios. And what was very interesting is all three were rather vocal supporters of a carbon market. And the question is, how, how, how do we implement it or, or can it be implemented in the, in the current political framework? But it, 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 is, it is interesting that you have some of the largest exposed entities Embracing a carbon market, as long as how it is designed doesn't create a class of unintended winners and and losers. So in terms of implementation of a national carbon market, you know, Paul, I think the, the, the devil's in the details. Well, and I guess from their perspective as well, if you can price it, A, you can pass that price on, but also that reduces the risks overall because now you're paying for something. That's an externality rather than facing a lawsuit down the line would be one thought on it. That's correct. And also some of these, I, I reference these, these three entities because I think they're all three viewed as thought leaders, at least in the U.S. independent power producer regions. They all operate in ISO or RTO markets that are known for transparency and liquidity. And many of these firms are competing head-to-head -head against uh, other types of generation, including solar and including wind, that does receive some tax subsidies that coal plants and gas plants do not. But that's a uh, discussion for another time. So I guess going full circle, in, at least in the West, you have an active risk transfer market, insurance products, derivatives that are going to better enable organizations and countries to manage some of these risks to a certain extent. And, you know, the 
the innovative or the ingenuity as well and, and, and platforms that have come up with new products that can address future risks. You, you mentioned at the start, though, that there isn't much insurance penetration in the developing world where many of these impacts are going to be felt significantly and where many commodities organizations invest in significantly, have operations within. How do you tackle that conundrum? At Swissery, we spend a significant amount of time focusing on sovereigns, so on, on governments. We have dedicated teams that cover sovereigns. Also, infrastructure-related development is a huge market for us. So think of toll roads and airports that are being built around the world. You know, many times these projects are highly exposed to either catastrophic related climate risk or can be other types of perils like excess rainfall risks if you're in the road construction business. But between the government sovereign focus and then on the infrastructure fund related focus, you know, Swiss Re and some of our uh, insurance competitors have a um, a pretty good dialogue with those entities. And inevitably in in emerging markets, you many times get a uh, higher level of governmental involvement than you otherwise would say in a, in a developed market like like the United States. And by continuing to kind of push the boundaries in terms of in innovation, many times what we're doing is we're convincing the the influential lenders to this market. So we'll work directly with the World Bank. We'll work directly with uh, IFC, which is part of the World Bank. We'll work with the North American Development Bank. The more channels we can have to address the climate change riddle, the better. And so we see you know, increasing acceptance in a lot of these emerging market nations. You know, unfortunately, the emerging market economies, at least more recently, you know, they're, they're, they don't operate in a, in a vacuum. So the same GDP contraction that we've had in, in North America and Europe, they're, they're feeling as well. I think it's been a, an enlightening discussion about the risk posed by climate change and some of the tools already out there to tackle that. And probably it seems to me that more and more organizations are going to have to have this mixed strategy of insurance and derivatives that tackle climate-related events that perhaps you know historically were so infrequent or less impactful that they didn't really need to be considered. And you know, I think, as you say as well there, that, that from a shareholder perspective, all of these organizations need to have not only strategies to make themselves more robust against climate change, but also answer to their shareholders' expectations about what they're doing to reduce it. Completely agree. When I look at the, the shareholder risk topic, I, I, I really see it from the multiple perspectives of an insurance company. And, you know, insurers do things or have lines of business that are, are very different from one another. And I, I, I look at risks such as uh, director, director and officer related risk. And in my opinion, that seems to be interwoven pretty hard with the, the underlying uh, business model that publicly traded companies are, are engaged in. So insurers may, may look at that risk and say, um, you know what, I, I'm not comfortable with underwriting that particular property risk because I don't like the 
climate impact of it. But furthermore, I'm also not comfortable underwriting the director's and officer's policy, or I'm not comfortable writing the liability risk. And so then you get sort of a, a snowball effect of, of pressure on some of these impacted companies. Yes, and that will be, you know, down the line, as if, if there is a, a growing crescendo of effects, will be, you know, something really considerable for the commodity deal, business to deal with. Well, it's been a, a fascinating discussion, Brian. I, I really appreciate your, your insight and your time. Look forward to, to staying connected and having you on again in the future as these things unfold. Yeah, great, Paul. Thank you very much. Appreciate you inviting me and certainly enjoy the, uh, the Human Capital podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.